0: Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is the podcast designed to help you live your life enthusiastically today, tomorrow, and every other day. As you know, our guests are always individuals who both lead their own lives enthusiastically and can provide ways to guide us to lead more meaningful lives. I am your host, Ron Kaiser the author of Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. My website is www.thementalhealthgym.com, where I'm always happy to have you visit. It's your source of information regarding positive psychology, goal-achieving psychology, and lots of other ways of living life enthusiastically. Now, I know some of you may be shocked to hear that I'm once again saying that our guest today is one of my favorite people. I'm really blessed with having a lot of favorite people, but this is one of my really favorite ones. Not only somebody who I know professionally and through her work, but she's also a friend and neighbor here in Philadelphia. Dr. Concha Alberg taught Spanish literature at St. Joseph's University. Since her retirement from teaching, she has focused on writing creative nonfiction. Part of what we're going to be talking about today is her family memoir, My Mother, That Stranger, Letters from the Spanish Civil War. It's been published by Sussex Academic Press and is available on Amazon In a few minutes, I'm going to have you hold up a picture of the book, Concha, but first of all, let me welcome you to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. It's such a pleasure to have you here. I've wanted to for a long time. I'm glad you're with us today.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm very happy that we connected and very happy to meet your audience.
0: Well, let me just start out with a little bit about you. I mentioned the fact that you retired from teaching at uh, St. Joseph's University. I have always been fearful of retiring, that I'd have nothing to do. Somehow that doesn't seem to be a problem for you. Can, uh, Can you tell us a little bit about how you spend your time? I can't always keep up enough to know, but you don't sound very retired to me.
1: No, no, I really I really don't. In fact, as much as I enjoyed teaching and everybody thought, oh my goodness, you're going to miss it so much. Everybody knew me as a professor from all my career. I really was looking forward to retiring to have more time for writing. In fact, when St. Joseph's University offered the tenure buyout, I was in the first year and probably the first person since my last name begins with an A that I requested it. And uh, because it seemed that I did everything that had to do with my teaching job and I always left my writing almost like a hobby. And I was really looking forward to retiring and being able to write full time, which is really what I've been doing since I retired exactly 10 years ago.
0: Wow. Well, there are many of us who have written books But you're a real author in the way that you address it and handle your life and so on. Do you have a set schedule when you write? How do you discipline yourself? I mean, obviously, it's not something that you pick up after work or something like that. How does a real author do her authoring?
1: Well, I'm very disciplined, but I don't have a schedule that I have to write either so many hours or every day. But in fact, in a normal week, I do write during the week. What I do do is I check in and I check out. That's very important for me because it shows me just exactly how many hours I've been at the computer, how many hours I've been working on my project. And at the end of the week, usually I feel very good because I look and I say, oh, my goodness, I was a good girl another week. And if I wasn't, then i say, whoa, I better take some time off this weekend or make it up next week. But I try to have an average of 20 to 25 hours a week, which means four or five hours a day, which I think is very reasonable time. So I have a life and I do live it with enthusiasm as you mentor. And, you know, I take my evenings to read or, or watch Netflix or see friends and then the weekends are definitely my time off. I need it to you know regenerate and think ideas. But during the week, I write and I, I try not to go out to lunch because I find that it breaks up my day too much and I don't go back to my writing in the afternoon but I, I exercise, I go to the gym. I have I have very much like a normal life but writing is definitely something that I I look forward to doing, and I make sure that I do it.
0: Is this something that you did throughout your life when you were teaching? Were you also writing beyond professional uh, journal articles or something like that? Were you always interested in creative writing?
1: I was, and and I look back on my books, my to collections of short stories, for example, and I look at the date of the first one, which is 1995, Una Noche en Casa. I wrote that one in Spanish. And I look at the date and I think, oh, my goodness, I was not tenure. And how did was I not tenure? I had already published a collection of short stories. So even though I said earlier that my writing was more like a hobby, the fact is that somehow or other I found time to do it. And and not as, as steadily as I've published, working on my fourth book since I retired in this 10 years. But I did manage to publish creatively during the time that I was writing, obviously, for my academic career. But I think part of the puzzle in my life is that my father was a writer as well. And even though I wasn't conscious that I was using him as a model, I think I definitely was and must have been because he definitely, he was very disciplined, I think, much more than I am. And I think I lived with this, seeing my father being an academic and a professor and coming home from the university and actually closing my door. I never closed my door, but he did, and having his privacy to write. And I think it really was a model for me.
0: And I know one of the cool things about you is that you don't just share your writings through your books, but you also conduct workshops for writers, lead writers groups, and so on. And I, I think that's got to be rewarding to help others fulfill their goals.
1: Well, that's very important to me. And I am glad that I do help. I mentor young writers and I do have seminars, like you said. But it's actually, I think is very beneficial for me because I'm not the kind of writer that writes in solitude and that closes the door. I already mentioned that my door in my office is always open. I think because I'm a mother as well, and I was writing always with the children running around and coming in and going out. I'm more comfortable that way than isolated. So I like to interact with writers. I like to feel that I am a member of a community of writers, which is so rich in Philadelphia. For example, I belong to Philadelphia Stories, which is a nonprofit that puts out a literary magazine four times a year. And I'm on the board for Philadelphia Stories. And we had a board meeting yesterday on a Sunday during the quarantine. And it's, it's very meaningful to meet with other writers. And that was the first thing we did before talking about business yesterday. We said, How are you handling? What are you doing with your time? How is your writing going? So I think being in a community of writers, helping other people, and other people helping me, they read my manuscript. I write in English, which is not my first language. So it's very beneficial for me when people are reading my writing and saying, you know, editing or commenting. I think it really works both ways. It isn't just me mentoring other students.
0: I still am certain that many, many people appreciate your input as well as what you're getting back from them. So let's talk about you know what you've written. How about, first of all, giving us a uh, short course on some of your previous books, and then I'd like to concentrate on this major work that's so fantastic that wanna spend much of our time talking about.
1: Well, I already mentioned that I published two collections of short stories. They were my two first creative works. And then I wrote a novel, American in Translation, which dealt mostly with the experience of being an immigrant because you can hear my accent when I speak and I have an accent when I write. So American in Translation is the story of these women that it was what is called today autofiction or autobiographical fiction because it was based on my own story coming into this country and feeling like an American, even though it was an American in translation. And that was the first novel that I wrote when I retired. And then for a series of circumstances, I I was made to switch my genre to creative nonfiction with The Divorce After Death, which was a memoir about being a widow. And from then on, creative nonfiction, this genre, of the memoir specifically, has been really my favorite. And the last book, the one that you know best and that you have invited me to speak about is My Mother, The Stranger, which you mentioned. We'll,
0: we'll have it in the show notes, too. So, we'll, we'll.
1: and Like you said, it's available on Amazon, not only on paperback, but on Kindle as well for some of you reading in this form. And this book, and each book is special. It's like being a parent and its child is different, but special. But this book is very special because it's based on the letters between my parents that I found hidden and put away for 80 years. I found them in 2013, and they have been really the focus of my writing since then. It's a major project, and I should tell you, not to impress you, but just to to make you realize how scary or how full a project it is, that I'm talking about 822 letters. So that's a lot of letters to find and a lot of letters to digest and study and work on.
0: Yeah, well, you may not have meant to scare me, but that that is pretty scary to think going through all those, those letters but you, you did a masterful job about it. Before we talk more about it, since this is really history to many uh, of us in the audience, can you just set the context in which the letters occurred and then we'll have you talk about what you found out. But again, Spanish civil war is not something that many of us have uh, lived through, at least not closely. And, uh, I'll let you tell us the context.
1: I'd be happy to. I'm not a historian. And even though I grew up in Spain, studying the Civil War in particular under Franco was not an, an open book. So I actually learn about the Spanish Civil War like many Americans studying it in the university and studying it in this country. And I actually find out that the people in this country know a lot about the Spanish Civil War. Almost everyone you talk to has a point of reference. The years were 1936 to 1939, so right before the Second World War. And, and the thing that is interesting for Americans, I think in particular about the Spanish Civil War, is that really it was like a dress rehearsal for the, the Second World War, because the world was already divided like it was for World War II the Americans and British and French were together and the Germans and the Italians were together as well. So it was already the world was already divided in the Spanish Civil War, the, the very same ideology. And in Spain it came right after a very liberal time, which was the Second Spanish Republic from nineteen thirty one to nineteen thirty nine, the end of the war. And then of course the Franco regime saw so completely opposite of the liberal government of the republic was so repressed. So that is part of the dynamic that is reflected in my book. Because my mother, that stranger, the title comes from me reading the letters and finding out that my mother, who I grew up with, was not the mother in the letters. In fact, I didn't recognize her at all. And I thought, who's this woman? I never knew that she had worked for a government, the Republican government, that she was such a liberal person. She had donated blood. She had, even though she was the oldest of seven, and was working full time. So it was really a surprise to read these letters. And that is why the title and the word that stranger. And then through studying about the, the Spanish history, I realized that she didn't grow up under Franco like I did. She grew up under the Spanish Republic that I mentioned that was so liberal. So this is why her education was so different from mine and her youth had been so different from mine.
0: And what was kind of most surprising that you you found out about her?
1: Well, I think the blood donation when I I had to actually get bibliography to find out, because they were held, by the way, this also went on to World War II. Many of the discoveries in science made during the Spanish Civil War became later on something that was used widely during the World War II. Blood donations, for example, were held with the donor in the room and the patient or the victim next to them, arm to arm or, you know, body to body. And And this was so shocking to me to find it now that my mother had been so brave and had been doing this as a young person. When growing up, she never talked about the war. My father did. My father talked all the time, told funny stories mostly about the war. But my mother was quiet. I realized now that she was quiet because she was probably worried that she could be in trouble with the Franco's government because she had worked for this Republican government. She worked in a co-op and she worked in the Ministry of Propaganda. She had two jobs under the, the liberal government. So she must have been quiet because she thought there was something that didn't want to be known. And I didn't find out until I read the letters.
0: Yeah, it sounded like your family, the family you grew up in, kind of operated along traditional lines to the best of appearances. And it sounds like the letters kind of showed a, a little bit of difference in the uh, in the equality of the, the two of them. I guess, first of all, uh, since we haven't mentioned it, your father was on the front lines.
1: Right. He was in the front lines fighting against Franco, but he was also in the rear guard, of the front lines, because he, for medical reasons, even though he carried a rifle, he never participated in the actual fighting. But I thought you were going to say, Ron, and, and you're right, my family was very traditional in the, how the genders were divided in my home. But one thing we haven't mentioned is that my father, in addition of being an academic, or maybe I did say how he was a model, that he was a writer, too, and a very well-known one in the academic world. So I think this was one of the big influences in my home that my father overshadowed my mother. Certainly he had an education that she did not. She didn't have a formal education. Even though she was so supportive of his career and so supportive too of my brother's studies and my own, my father was definitely the, the master of the household.
0: It sounds like your mother had... Fair amount of assertiveness, and it looks like you picked up the best from both of them, your mother's assertiveness and your, your father's intellectual bent and in, in writing. And going through the letters must make you appreciate them both.
1: Well, that's so interesting, and thank you very much for your compliments. I think the word that I would use for my mother, and I knew that even growing up, is that she was so resourceful. And I think I am resourceful as well. So I do see that in her. But it's something that was fascinating about finding the letters is that as a writer, this was a gift. Here you are, a writer. You just retire to write. And then you go and find 800 letters. Well, come on. How luckier can you be, Concha? This was unbelievable. Somebody is like somebody planted this for me. So as a writer, it was a gift. As a daughter... It was a gift because I got to live with my parents, and I still am. Like this morning, I was writing, and I was reading my father and working on a new book. And it's a gift that I spent hours with him every day. So yes, it was very good, but it also was a huge responsibility. And as a writer, I felt it very heavy on me that I had to do something, something meaningful, something well done and i thought you know am i up to it am i good enough i mean i wanted to be a writer but boy do i have a choice now? can i escape now so in a way it it was really a gift spending time with my family a gift as a daughter and a responsibility as a writer
0: well i think you've done your your family really proud one thing i want to make sure that we don't uh Overlook, how how does somebody come upon 800 and some letters? How did this all happen in the first place?
1: In the first place, yeah. Well, because my father's centenary was in 2014, the centenary of his birth, there was a symposium being held in Spain in the University of Malaga. And the year before, I went there with two colleagues to go over my father's books and documents because everything was being donated as his legacy to the university. And I, and I was I live in this country, this was in Spain, and I just wanted to check things up, checking in, like an American would say. And I was there with his two colleagues when the doorman came up and said, you know, you remember that there is an attic. This sounds like something out of a movie, doesn't it? That there is an attic upstairs and here is the key. Needless to say, we went up into to the attic, which had not been looked through. This doorman did not tell the other people that had catalog and get everything ready for the move. And there was one box, a very large box with mainly household items in the attic. And we opened the box and they were class notes from when my father taught at the university in Madrid. So at first, uh, well, mainly me, I'm very quick to make decisions and they're not always right. But I thought, oh, class notes, let's close this up. No, 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 said my colleague. Ángeles Encinar from the University of Madrid. Let's look at down here. And under the class notes, they were obviously hidden there. There were many more than 800 because there's 800, the Civil War letters, but there were more letters there from the family that had been hidden up there. So that's how I found them.
0: Boy, what a treasure. I mean, most of us can't turn finding that treasure into into an academic project. But I think a lot of us either have some things put away from previous generations or we've got some things that probably are worth sharing with future ones and don't think much about it. I'm wondering if you learn some things from that process that you can pass along to those of us ordinary folks who may not you know, write an academic book about it, but maybe in a position, I mean, I always, my wife Libby and I always kind of assume that when we're gone, the kids are going to come in with a dumpster and going to get rid of everything. There may be some things that worth not getting rid of, and we may have some things from previous generations. What have you learned that we can pass along that doesn't necessarily have to result in, in a published book?
1: Well, absolutely, I think you're a hundred percent right and you don't need to have eight hundred letters. You could have eight or nine letters, which I think all of us do, I think is very important and this is really a trend in the United States with the genealogy and people doing their DNA. I think that's wonderful, and people find out about their families that way. But I think finding whatever it is, something written, letters and, and it could be emails in the modern culture to find the correspondence between somebody in your family, even if you don't have both, like I do, have my father's and my mother's letters. But even if you have just a few treasures, I think it's worth looking at them and thinking, what do they mean to you, person that has them, in your generation, maybe your siblings? Uh, Like I've been talking to my cousins a lot when I write these books or what it could mean for the future, your grandchildren. I think I was telling Ron earlier today when we were preparing for this talk that for the first time, my grandchildren are reading this book because they are interested, and it's a book about their Spanish family. And we were getting ready to go to Spain this summer before the virus came, and they were very excited about this. And now they are reading this book, getting ready for a future trip, hopefully so I think if a person that has retired and is looking for a project or just really wants to do something for their family, I think it's a wonderful way to put things in context. For example, if I had a few letters, even if I was not a writer, I would, you can digitize them, I realize, but you can transcribe them, which is a much more personal thing than digitize them and just annotate them. Even a few letters, just make little notes. Oh, my goodness, this reminds me of, which is really what I did in the book. I would read the letters, and then I would say, oh, well, this reminds me of, or this was like, or this was not like. So just having some kind of a document, a project that is telling, even if it's a piece, a short time of history for your family, I I think is a wonderful wonderful way to connect with the future generations and with your own past
0: when you think about it there's probably been a whole lot that's been lost that could be very meaningful to future generations and if we can do something about it we got time to do it
1: we do and i'm thinking of photos we haven't mentioned photos the book is illustrated it has photos from my family and my parents i think that you could do that with photos even if you don't have Letters. You could just sit down and instead of a, a, you know, a simple photo album. You could have an annotated photo album. Oh my goodness! I think this is a project that I'm going to do. An annotated photo album. I want to make a note of it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I never thought
1: of it until now. But I would love doing something like that.
0: Yeah, and certainly everybody I think has photos that, right? And annotating it would not be tremendously difficult, even especially if you're not getting published. But no. you also have other things like if you're into Spanish food, you've got some of your mother's recipes in the book, and it's a great, you know, thing to pass along.
1: Right. Originally, I was already thinking about writing about my mother, and it was going to be about her wisdom. And there is a chapter in this book also about Spanish sayings, because I remember her using lots of sayings in day-to-day life, and then her recipes. So when I found the letters, of course, that took over, but I did include her recipes, which the editor, being an academic publisher, said absolutely not. No recipes. And we did negotiate. I said, oh, wait a minute, you know, women's legacy includes, in men's too, by the way, men cook, you know, as much as women do. So we negotiated, and the recipes are in an appendix. So they are in the book, if not as part of the story, as part of the legacy.
0: Oh, that's terrific. It, I think attitudes over time are changing, and as it stops being something that's seen as something that's secondary, I think you're probably going to see more emphasis on things that have been less traditional uh, as far as academic stuff is concerned, and recipes are, are certainly a part of the culture. Absolutely. So this has been really fascinating, but I'm wondering, what are you working on now? I'm sure you didn't stop with this book.
1: No, no, I didn't stop. 800 letters was overwhelming, like I already mentioned. So I dealt with my mother's letters mostly for my mother, that stranger. And that was that project, obviously, is written in English, published in England. But the university that is helping his my father's documents and books, they, they were not so happy with me, you know, because I, they wanted me to do something about my father. So then I was ready. Once I had done about my mother, who I really wanted to bring into the forefront, I decided. Okay, it's time to work on my father's letters. So I have another four hundred, and I've read them so many times. I can't even really honestly tell you how many. I was ready. What I'm doing with the letters now for my father's book, which is in Spanish and is being published by the university that is holding his books and his documents, in the translation of the title will be a portrait of the young writer Juan Luis Alborg in his letters during the Spanish Civil War. And what I'm doing with this book is I'm analyzing then the letters as a literary text. So I'm not dealing with the war, that's a given, and he doesn't deal with it mainly. I'm not dealing with the social political situation, but I'm dealing with him as a writer because that's what he was. And I'm saying that at 25 years of age, when he wrote these letters, he was already formed. He was the opposite of my mother. I recognized him in his letters. This is the man I knew. And analyzing these letters as part of his contribution to Spanish literature, as a literary text, this is his creative work, this epistolary collection.
0: Once it's published, we want you back on here and... Let the world know about your father the way you are about your mother. So this has been really, really fascinating. But as always, time runs out at some point. This book and all your books are available on Amazon? or yes. how, how do people get,
1: get Yes, it? they're all available. Even my academic works. I, I don't know why the other day I was looking myself in Amazon. And yes, even my academic works are all in Amazon. Everything is in Amazon
0: nowadays, isn't it? And my mother, that stranger, is available, Is it, did you say, in ebook form as well? As, as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, it is.
0: Okay, so for those of us who don't like to lug around a whole lot of books, you can get it for your, your Kindle or iPad or whatever. And, again, I, I'm really, really grateful that you've taken this time to share with us I'm sure you've inspired a lot of people. If if somebody wants to find out a little more about you or be in touch with you, is there a way to do it?
1: Absolutely. They can go to my webpage, which is www, and then my complete name, conchaalborg.com. And my email address is there, and all the books are not all the academic things. You can get to them too, but it's mostly about my creative career as an author. And uh, and I'll be very. In fact, it happens all the time. I know from here somebody's gonna write to me and contact me, and I'm always happy to to reach you. And then something we haven't said that people don't maybe realize how important it is for us authors is if somebody writes a review in amazon that is very welcome we always love reviews in amazon and people then that you don't need to do it writing you could do it just with how many stars when you read it but it it matters every every comment is helpful and appreciated
0: i can second that i know how much it's appreciated and i know that your presence has been, you know, really inspiring to a lot of people who would like to be like you. So uh, I really want to thank you again for sharing this time with us. I hope you'll be back. I want you to think in terms of enjoying the summer, staying well, and recognize that people will learn more about your family as, as a result of your being here.
1: Thank you so much.
0: It was just terrific, don't you? This has been Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser, the podcast designed to help you live your life enthusiastically. Just as Concha has said, we always are happy for reviews, So we hope that you'll, uh, when you listen to the podcast, download it, rate it, review it on, on your favorite platform. Again, my website is www.thementalhealthgym.com. My book is Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. And I am hopeful that you'll join me and my next guest very soon. Thanks again, Concha, and enjoy the summer.
1: Thank you.